Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey guys, welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. I'm Gael, and today I'm not with Mark, I'm not with Perrin, I'm with Matt Diggity. How's it going, Matt? Very, very good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You know, I only listen to three podcasts and you're on one of them. So thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You're still doing better than me. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts usually. (laughs) But I'm really glad that you're listening to ours. And as you know, it's like, it's kind of like open discussions and we're happy to like have conflicting opinions, just debate respectfully about things, etc. And it's also one of the reasons why I brought you here. You do things that we don't do. Uh, I think you do a lot of things better than we do in many aspects. So uh, I'm looking forward to learn stuff. And I wanted to, you know, put visions in parallel. So it also gives a little bit of nuance to people who listen, that there's not just one way of doing internet marketing, that we have our own way, but there's other people doing other things that are interesting. And a lot of the things we bring up, we learn them by inspiring ourselves from other people, including your blog. You have a really good blog as well. And that's also one of the only blogs I read in this industry. And it's probably less than three. (laughs) So yeah, I think it's going to be quite interesting. And we're going to be focusing this episode a little bit on affiliate SEO, because we talk a lot about this, like we have this three stage of authority website building, essentially, and stage one, essentially, is mostly building an affiliate site that has a branding that can be transformed into a broader authority site with multiple business models. But really, initially, we're like, well, the goal is to buy your time back, make the site break even so you get free growth. And usually one of the easiest ways to do that is affiliate SEO. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this today. But before we get into that, I think a lot of people might not know you. So it would be cool if you can say who you are and (laughs) explain what your business is about. I know you have multiple businesses and so on. So just so people get a a broad overview of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Matt Diggity. I've been doing SEO since 2009. 2009, obviously, everyone comes on and says, I've been doing it for a while, and it used to look a lot differently, so I won't spoil you with the good old days and stuff like that. But yeah, so my business these days is primarily focused on affiliate SEO, so it's good we're having this conversations. I have a business called LeadSpring. LeadSpring is pretty much the affiliate SEO business itself, and that includes a department for growing sites from scratch. We also purchase sites, so purchase off marketplaces or private deals and grow those. And we have a JV program called Launchpad. Now, what Launchpad is, is let's say you get a website, like private you know, affiliate website owner, gets a website making $1,000 a month, and, and they get stuck for some reason, for maybe just run out of resources, time, or whatever. So we would partner, and whatever profit that LeadSpring adds on top of that, we split 50-50. So let's say... We get it up to 7000 a month. That's 6000 in difference. So LeadSpring will take home three, and you'll take home three plus the original one. So you'll make 4000 for doing nothing. So there's that. And a big part of our business model these days is flipping. So every single website we create has the intention to flip later. The reason behind that is basically when I was first building this business and really going hardcore in affiliate SEO, Everyone wants to scale, right? And I had it in my head that, so what I'll do is I'll get a bunch of websites, maybe two, three, four, who knows how many websites up to 20K a month. And then what should I do next? Well, I'll take all that profit and invest it into new sites. And I kept doing that. I kept going from 20, 30, 40, 50. 
And then I just never made any money because all that profit was being reinvested. So now I've gone onto a different model where I'm flipping and it's been way better for us. We have more time on our hands because we're not working on a billion sites anymore. And those flips are big. You get 30, sometimes 35x multiples. And now we can easily hit the five to sometimes six figure a month range. And you know the, the annual is much, much better. So that's lead spring. Also, I got a, a blog, like you mentioned, diggitymarketing.com. I have a course called The Lab. I have some services for SEO, authority builders, sales guest posts, and also do a conference, the Chiang Mai SEO conference. So that's me in a business nutshell, not a personal nutshell. How do you deal with all these different things? Like, how do you split your time, actually? Mm, yeah, so I'd have to say most of my time is spent with either LeadSpring and a big chunk of it is well, lately is on the Chiang Mai SEO conference. Man, that's a tough business to do, man. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about ROI, that's a bad one. But yeah, like a lot of it's sprint and lead spring. But as you can imagine, there's, there's a lot of moving parts to all these businesses. And to, the only thing that keeps me sane is I, I keep a, a maximum count on people that report to me at six. So yeah, I have two people reporting to me from lead spring, two people from Diggity, one that I work with, authority builders, et cetera. And that's the only way I can keep saying, if, if it were like hundreds of VAs and stuff talking to me, I would, I would just freak out already. Yeah, so you have a middle management layer below you that then manages people below them. Exactly, exactly. Cool. Let's jump into the FA SEO part because I think that's what people clicked on that podcast anyway. I want to know, most people start with Amazon. A lot of people make a lot of money with Amazon. Out of all the FA stuff you do, what percentage would you say is Amazon? Oh, okay. So I'm about 20% Amazon. And the okay. only reason I'm 20% Amazon is because I'll always end up going to a niche. And then eventually when I want to make more content in that niche, like expanding beyond the official, the original uh, affiliate products I wanted to target, there's always something Amazon. So I'm always just going to write some review eventually but I really, really don't like it. And the reasons are risk aversion, you know, like what if they chop the, the commission rates yeah. in half again, right? ROI, right? What if they burn you because you don't have the little timestamp for when you pulled the price or whatever, you know, like all these crazy rules that they have. Like we have a lot of HPro members who really struggle with Amazon because mm. the, the, the guidelines are really, really, really strict actually. Yeah, man. Uh, dude, I've been banned at least four different times, at least four different times. <laughs> Every time I, I start a new website, it's in a new family member's Amazon affiliate account. That's the point yeah, it's gotten to. <laughs> so yeah, it's risk aversion. Yeah, and getting banned is a big part of it. ROI, you know, there's you know, it's, it's a it's a small small commission payout, but you do make up for that with that cookie, right? Anyone can buy anything yeah. on their own Amazon. But the big thing for me is like I'm a big conversion rate optimization aholic, so to speak. And you're so limited with what you can do when you're selling Amazon stuff because of the terms of service. Like your buttons have to look like this and you're, you can't have outrageous claims. What is an outrageous claim? You know, it's like, it's like you can barely even sell the product. So I try not to do Amazon, but I have to sometimes. What networks do you recommend people go for to find quality offers? Because many times, you know, you go to your average network and 95% offers have absolutely terrible sales pages and all that stuff. Like, how do you go and, and find good offers for whatever niche you work in? Mm, well, the best are usually private uh, affiliate kind of things. It's not through a network. 
So like yeah. a lot of the people I work with, it's just like a direct affiliate between me and them. And they'll have something installed like Reversion or some of these other programs that kind of manage their affiliate. But you're right. You're right. Most of the, the big networks, they have a lot of junk in there. It's really hard to sort through them. But I'm big in health, like health and beauty and stuff like that. So market health is good. Health trader gets some good offers every once in a while. But you just you really just kind of find those one-on-one deals. Those are the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you reach out for to find them, or do you or like do you, do you create them with the the sellers? It's in the niche research process, like right. So if I'm um, building a new site from scratch, like I'm not just going to build it if I see the search volume and then I see that yeah it's it's rankable or something like that. I also want to see okay, what's the monetization potential? Are there affiliates in the space that you can actually make money with? And like, this is also a big thing when I'm purchasing sites from like, let's say Empire Flippers, you can have an instant win if you can replace something that was on Amazon with a direct affiliate. And we just did that like last month. I mean, that's what they did. Wired investors did when they bought Hip Hop, right? They mm-hmm. bought Hip Hop from Perrin and then they had an exclusive access to the Chewy affiliate program, oh, which paid way more than Amazon. And they basically doubled the income almost instantly by just swapping the links. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's essentially, and so that, that was a good thing for them, but like Chewy required a minimum, I think they required a minimum traffic or something. Like, I mean, Perrin had tried to go into it before, but he couldn't. And then because where it had other sites in the niche, they were able to provide the traffic, get into a program, mm-hmm. and then increase the profit substantially. I think they wrote a blog post about it. That's why I'm talking about it because they wrote a blog post about it on their blog, right? Yeah. I wouldn't out people's private stuff, but they they wrote a post about it. So I don't think that it's a big secret or anything like that. But I'm happy to hear you say that because uh, actually in our stage one site course, like the other side system, like the thing I keep hammering on this research is like, where is the money? You know, I'm like, you don't pay your rent in backlinks or in rankings. Right. Finding offers is, is also important, but like uh, I think it's definitely something that we'll need to talk about again on finding offers, et cetera, because I feel like you're doing different things than we do, actually. If we want to get creative with that, about that kind of thing, and this might be overly advantageous for someone like me or you who lives in a digital nomad country, is that like we have something that all dropshippers and all FBA people dream about. We have traffic to physical products, right? Yeah. And those are excellent partnerships. You can pitch pretty much anybody and make up whatever rules you want to in this kind of deal and say, hey, I'll deliver the traffic. You just need to make a product for whatever this kind of widget is. And they're definitely going to do it. And they're going to give you a sweet deal. Like sometimes you can get like anything purchased on the website or versus Amazon, like can be, you can have 50% because they had nothing before that, right? We had one partner that, um, We were selling something, a beauty product on Amazon, and I think the product was like $8 on Amazon, so it was like 50 cents for us, so not even worth it. So we we teamed up with this partner, and he made the product, started an e-commerce store, and our site's revenue jumped from like $500 a month to over $10,000, and this guy's like working on a million-dollar company now, so it's it's solid win-win. Yeah, I think Tung did that as well for his uh, skin site. He talked about this as well on his blog, so... Where he was ranking for some like skincare products, mm. he was doing Amazon. Then he just started an e-commerce site and it just increased his profit massively. Actually, Tim Tran. So yeah, it's also like this kind of like affiliate sites. They're great to just start an FBA business in general. That's we have some members that also run full e-commerce sites, and they actually say that following the article templates that we use for affiliate stuff and just linking to their e-commerce product was by far the highest return on investment marketing they've done. So overall, yeah, you can just take this stuff and 
start an e-commerce and start FBA, etc. I wanted to ask you though, do you only do affiliate marketing or do you do other things on your site? Like, do you touch a little bit of everything or is like 100% affiliate marketing monetization? So on the affiliate sites, it's 100% affiliate, but we're doing other stuff like, you know, lead gen and agency level work too, but affiliates just straight up affiliate. I haven't, I haven't done anything. Okay. Because usually what we do actually is, um, so to grow our domain rating, we create a lot of informational content that doesn't really sell anything. Mm-hmm. We use it for link building. Yep. But then after we've done all the outreach for it, we just slap something like AdStripe on it or something. And still these articles make like 15, 20 bucks per thousand visitors. But then you end up having hundreds and hundreds like on health ambition. It's actually amounting to a decent amount of money as well. Actually. Nice, man. I've, I've taken your course. Okay. I have uh, Authority Hacker original version, vanilla version or whatever. That's, yeah. that's smart. I didn't know you guys were you know, monetizing the informational content. It's like you use it for link building. You and when we do it for link building, we kind of have a system in WordPress where we have a tag called no ads and it just removes like all opt-in pop-ups, all advertising, etc. So when you outreach, you send it and it's super clean. Mm-hmm. And then two, three months after your outreach is done, then well, this piece of content is sitting around and many times they end up ranking because they get direct links, yeah. you know. You can use them for internal linking to push to other pages. Yeah. But then then the traffic you can monetize with ads easily and you do ads plus email, essentially email collection with like opt-in pop-ups, et cetera, mm. to whom you can push affiliate offers. Right. And that's why I'm asking if you just do the affiliate stuff or if you do other things because we call this revenue stacking essentially and it's kind of the model builds on top of each other mm. because you're helping your affiliate content initially, but then you can also make extra money from these things essentially. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to ask you, how do you angle promotions for products usually? Like, do you take more of a native ads format where you essentially trying to rank for an informational keyword and kind of like subtly push a product or not too subtly? Or do you mostly for like things like product comparisons like we see a lot of affiliates do? Mm. Okay, so I basically came from an engineering background. But when I was an engineer, like I was working for a big corporate company and they were grooming me to be a salesperson. So indoctrinated into all these like old school sales books. And a lot of them had this concept called the sales cycle, which is, it's basically what a lot of, uh, you know, SEOs call buyer intent, right? So I'm going for the whole gamut, right? Like I'm definitely going for like the way, way buyer intent keywords, like where to buy blank or best blank. Those are really close to the end, but also like really, really far away, like how to fix nail fungus, for example, that's like pretty far away, but you can eventually get them down the road, you know, how to fix nail fungus. Well, you can do it at home or you can use a cream. What's the best cream? This is the best cream, right? So I'm going for all of it really, but you posed a really good question earlier for the informational content, like just filler content used for links or used for whatever, just uh, fresh content on the site. Like, Typically, the buyer intent on that is really, really far away. So low, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I will do like kind of like what you guys are doing. I'll try to get an email opt-in through through a lead magnet, some kind of ebook or something like that. But my email follow-ups isn't. I'm not like making any info product or any kind of like little course or anything. Mm. I think that's a really good idea. I'm just doing an automated follow-up series and then like in the third or fourth email saying, oh, like this is my secret weapon for Plank, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just more and more affiliate. 
So, yeah, I mean, you're basically doing the 80-20 on email marketing, right? You're just collecting emails and then kind of like throwing what you have at people. And then it makes you some extra money, basically. Yeah. But we do a lot of that in a lot of our categories, um, health ambition and so on. Because, you know, if you, especially if you want to be targeted to people that opt in, then you need a, a hundred email follow-ups. And that can be a job, but it's a, it's a whole different type of effort marketing. Another thing I wanted to talk about as well is obviously you talked about pro comparisons and I know a lot of people do this. Uh, so I'm, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this. We kind of like do things differently on that end. I mean, I was reading your blog and essentially what you do is you write an article. Let's take the example of acne face cream, let's say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, we would write an article per use case. So we'd write best acne face cream for dry skin, best acne face cream for people with acne with scars, for example, mm-hmm. best acne face cream for teenagers, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these have some search volume. Whereas from what I've read you do is you create one article, best acne face cream, and then you create, then you create subsections with all the use cases. Right. From what I understand. Is that what you do? You know, yes and no. Like half the time these days, I'm not building sites from scratch. So it's just like whatever I bought yeah. is what I'm dealing with. But if I were to build a site from scratch these days, I'd be really hesitant about breaking up pages into multiple pages of content because in my experience right now, keyword cannibalization is such a rampant plague on an SEO's life that I'd be afraid like your acne scars page would, would conflict with the dry dry skin page and just screw things up. So it's, it's a gray area, right? If it's truly a different topic, I would make it on a different page, but I, I would tend to put it in one post. Okay. I mean, I've had this debate with Mark for like months and months. Like, how do we handle this? I'm still not 100% sure we're doing it the right way. We're still doing separate pages. I mean, usually what we do is we try to take all the different keywords and we track the pages that rank for it. And basically, if they're the same page, we try to group it in one page. Mm -hmm. And if they're different pages, we essentially try to just copy what Google has already, essentially. Yeah, that's a good idea. Have you had an issue? I mean, does it work every time? No. Sorry. Yeah, it has happened. Yeah, it, it, cannibalization definitely has happened mm-hmm. before. But since we started doing, like, basically it's an acute research phase, right? You just just go and you list all the pages that rank for these keywords, and it tends to be the same ones popping up for these things. And if, if they do, like, you, you kind of map out the whole topic, like acne cream, like, and then you have all, like, all the use cases, and you can map out which pages, you know, in the top 10, which ones have the sim- similar pages, and you can map out, like, three, four pages out of it based on, what is most likely to happen, what is happening already in Google. Right. You know? So, I mean, I, I can't say it's the absolute perfect solution. I mean, it hasn't been scientifically tested, so I can't say that. That's the best solution. And that's why I'm asking you. I'm literally asking you questions that I really have right now and things we're working on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but it's interesting to see. So right now you just, you would always go for one page, right? Yeah, that, it's, it would be a rare case where I'd want to break it up. I'm too chicken shit about keyword cannibalization right now. Okay. I mean, you know what? I'll try, I'll try it out. Maybe I'll report about it later. Another thing is, since you're a big CRO guy, and most people talk about, oh, how do you get these articles to rank? It's cool to rank. It's better to get people to click on your offers. Mm-hmm. Any tips on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, this is the funnest part of this whole affiliate marketing process, because this is like when you're actually interacting with a human, right? This is yeah, the yeah, only yeah. human part you get. So like, basically, what I can say is you have to break it down into a couple different things, or I would say three different parts in order to get the conversions. Like one, you got to get people to stick on the page in the first place. And people argue and they say, you have three seconds to do that. You have five seconds to do that. I'd probably argue it's even shorter, 
So step one is just making sure people feel like they're in the right place. So like you guys have on your site, nice featured image at the top showing exactly what you're, you're reviewing, like a golf club or something like that, a big headline, and then a nice intriguing first paragraph, right? So like a strong info paragraph that is not too revealing. You don't want to like spoil the party right away, but be entertaining or be smart or even incite fear. Like if they don't read this, they're going to miss out on something or they're going to buy the wrong product, something like that. So that's step one, just getting people to read. Step two would be mm-hmm. getting people to stay on the page until they get to the CTAs, right? So that's typically, I, I think, I also have, have looked at your blogs and I think you guys do a good job of it. You All your articles are nice and visually formatted well. There's no like walls of text. That's super important because these days yeah. no one reads yeah. anymore. Everyone, they read a little bit and they start scanning the headlines. They scan, they look at the pictures. Oh, here's a cool graph. And that's pretty much it. So once you get people to stick around long enough, then they get to the CTAs. That's that's where it gets a little bit important where the skill that needs to come in that comes with experience or like at least studying CRO a little bit. When there's a table, for example, big things about comparison tables is I would definitely recommend you have to load the table up in mobile and make sure those CTAs are clickable. A lot of people are putting CTAs on the rightmost column, which will bleed off the screen if you don't have a responsive table. And then no one will convert. And we all know that's like majority mobile traffic these days in almost all That was the issue with uh, Thrive Architect, right? I think you gave them a shout out when they released the mobile-friendly tables. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And you're working with my friend Kurt, uh, at least from what I talked to him about, and what yeah. he, he's seen a lot of big gains with, and I'm sure he can say this himself too, but is just optimizing for mobile because it's a big thing that people neglected up until now. Yeah, he's actually going to post on the Atari Hacker blog with uh, findings from Health and Mission. Like, I don't mind making them public, so he's actually going to write a guest post on the blog with a lot of stats and tests he's been doing, so it should be pretty cool. Excellent. Nice. And then one more thing related to the tables is like what I really like to do is typically a table has multiple products like one, two, three, four, five. I like to kind of skew them out in such a way that each of them appeals to a different kind of reader. So the number one product is just the best of the best. This is for the people that come to the site that don't care about saving money. They just want to buy the best curved screen LCD, you know, that's just number one, right? So that one's the most expensive and it's also the best ratings and everything's going great for that one. Number two would be the cheapest or the best bargain deal, right? So this is for the bargain shoppers. Number three would have like the best warranty. Everyone would cover a different category and everyone would be scored a little Mm -hmm. bit differently. (laughs) That said, I'm kind of revealing something that I'm not actually reviewing products. It's kind of just ordering them on how I kind of feel about it. But welcome to affiliate marketing. Yeah, I mean, come on, you know, most people do that anyway. So it's like, I mean, it's like on this podcast, we try to be honest, like, of course, we haven't bought every single creamy review on health and (laughs) mission either. But what we do is we do research on them. We do like user feedback research online, et cetera, and try to find people who have used them and and use their feedback to build the reviews, essentially. I know a lot of people do that. And and to be honest, even a lot of tech sites that review products don't even touch them either, et cetera. Same for cows, you know. So I think it's just the world of reviewing products and giving information out there overall. Is <laughs> yeah. how it I'd say it's perfect. I wouldn't say it's ideal, but it's a reality in most industries where they talk about products. Yes. How do you set up your framework for testing 
what works better? Do you, what tools do you use? And how do you, like, because I think a lot of people would like to test things, but they have no idea how to test. Are we talking about testing ranking techniques or testing monetization? Testing conversion rate. So testing click to offer on ah, page. Okay, that's easy. I just use Optimizely and that's like straight up A-B test. But you still have the old account with the 50,000 free, et cetera? Yeah. I have like five of them. Yeah, yeah. I probably wouldn't pay for it if I didn't have that. It's pretty expensive considering how little I use it. Now it is, yeah. Now I think it's $15 per thousand visitors or something. It's, but um, I think uh, I mean, Google Optimize now is pretty good. It's just a little bit harder to use, I think. But I wanted to bring that up. But since you brought up the topic about testing rankings, how do you do that? <laughs> mm. So this one's tricky. Like a big part of my SEO strategy is like, I've, I've been doing this for a while. And like most people, like you guys too, I've been burnt at some point. I had a massive penalization. And then yeah. at that yeah. point in time, it was, I remember I was here in Chiang Mai and it was like Penguin 2.0 came out. I went to the bar and I saw a whole bunch of SEOs and the, everyone was just depressed. <laughs> like I remember Kurt was there too. And he's like, I fucking quit this shit, mate. And yeah, everyone was just like, oh, I'm done with this. So I was at the crossroad where I was like, okay, do I continue on with this stuff or do I do things a little bit differently? And at that point in time, I just decided I'm not going to believe anything I read on the web about how to rank websites. If I'm going to try anything, it's based on my actual test results that I try out in real websites. So I dug back into my engineering background and I started running controlled variable tests. So I'd make websites that are pretty much the same. And basically you have a control group and a variable group, experimental group, and you Mm -hmm. apply something new to the experimental group and you look at the difference. The only difference that's different from normal science and like I would guess testing for SEO is that there's a factor called random ranking factor, which is if you were to build five websites or or launch five new pages on the same website at the same time, and they're all very similar, of course, they don't have dupe content. It's just going to work out like this. You're going to have one that's just completely kicks butt. It's just ranks super high. One's going to be like the garbage just it'll never rank for anything and then three will be just so so right so that randomness mm-hmm. will mess up your testing and this is why you get a lot of people testing and that they find out like oh h4 is the number one on-site ranking factor it's, it doesn't work that way because you mm-hmm. you have to deal with this randomness factor so the only way to combat that is to have big control groups and big experimental groups and then when you're looking at these results you're looking at the average so what's the average increase of ranking across the control group what's the average increase in traffic across the experimental group etc that's how i approach it and it's expensive but the how results big how big is your test uh, group? like how many different test sites do i have yeah uh, like yeah can you probably 50 to 100 at this point yeah. Wow. So you just maintain these and just test random things on them and decide what works yeah. and what doesn't. Yeah, I'm doing it all the time. Like, at least in my company, I release like an internal document every Wednesday, and there's at least four to 10 concurrent tests going on at the same time. And then I have testing groups that I, I work with some other folks in the industry. Yasher Gafferlu is one of them, He's this, this kid. Mm-hmm. And we just share, like, every Friday, you, you report back on what tests you have, and we share knowledge. and and get some good gains from it. That's really mm-hmm. cool, actually. 
We're going to get back to SEO, but actually I have my, a question on my notes, and I think it's going to be even worse later if I ask it. So what do you do with email exactly? We mentioned it a little bit earlier, but you like you said you capture emails sometimes on info content. Like, do you make like a lot of your business via email, or is this just it's like 10 to 15% increased revenue for a site? Like, I just, you know, make that mm-hmm. opt-in, some kind of ebook, and then write out an email follow-up series. Email number five or six has some kind of affiliate offer in it, and then just let it let it sit. But I think one of the great things about about email or at least having an email list is what I'm finding these days is a huge justification ranking factor, meaning that like you can justify the occurrence of tons of links if you have traffic. And if you have an email list with 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 mm. people on it, then you have traffic on demand. So anytime you put out a new post, you email that to the list, 30% of them are going to go to your site. That's a huge amount of justification for the actual manipulative SEO you might be doing. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's a good point, actually. Actually, one thing that you might want to try, I found works pretty well on, on quite a few sites, actually. It's basically, we made a, an autoresponder per category of the site. So let's say, let's go back to the Acne mm-hmm. site, right? Let's say you have Acne scars, you have daily skincare, and you have proper acne treatment. Let's say you have these three categories, right? What we do is we publish content in these categories. So let's say you publish a, a piece of content in acne scars. And then the people who actually, you email it to your email list and the people who click to the article, you can tag them in active campaign. Mm-hmm. That's what we use. And then they trigger autoresponders that promote stuff to them because you're tagging people by activity, you know, just the people that the people that click on the link when they, and then you can essentially take your broad email list about acne in general on your site if you just have one right. lead magnet. And by emailing your content, you just t- apply text to these people and you're like, oh, these people like this, this, right. and this, you know? And then, and then automatically you can have autoresponders that trigger when they trigger an interest. Yeah, that's you know? great. You guys have dug into it way more than I have and it makes me feel lazy. Thanks. I mean, like on the SEO side, sometimes I feel the same when I listen to your stuff, so don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, it's like, it's something that you might want to look at because you can 100% automate it. And then it's just like, you know, have someone just email you new content and then all your sales stuff happens to very engaged people. So you don't burn your list on when people are Mm, not opening emails and clicking. Right. So yeah, uh, just, uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit of keyword research as well. Because I know people will be like, oh, you didn't talk about keyword research. And it's probably the hardest topic with link building. So, and we'll talk about link building in a second. So, but we talked a bit earlier about this, like what makes a good affiliate keyword? Like, can you give me examples of non-traditional affiliate keywords that you found? You don't have to give me the exact example, but just give me an example in another niche of something that you're not doing or something like this, that, and how you would plug an affiliate offer. Mm, Like non-traditional? I mean, I... Like not the best, not the best acne cream or not like, basically, how would you promote something that's not a tutorial keyword or like a how to, not a best X keyword, like best acne keyword. Yeah. The, I mean, the only thing that's coming to my head that's outside the box right now is I'll try to rank for the product itself. Like if it's, I don't know, Acne 2000, this name of the product, you know, most SEOs will go for mm-hmm. Acne 2000 review. Like I'll try to rank for Acne 2000. And that is, in my experience, the op- like, as you can imagine, the the most you can actually make from an affiliate keyword or from an affiliate niche is when you rank for the actual product that you're trying to review. That said, the people that you're promoting don't like that. So They don't yeah. like it, yeah. 
I mean, I think we rank for Ahrefs right now, but we rank with the review. Do you rank with the review page when you do that, or do you make another page? Yeah, typically, it's not something I'm going for all the time just because I've been cut off from affiliate programs. But some of the ones, like, I've done, like, a lot of the shadier affiliate niches, like, loan-type stuff. Didn't Garcinia mm-hmm. Cambogia, like, these guys don't give a shit. They, they do whatever. Yeah. And yeah, that, I mean, when I was ranking for Garcinia's, I was ranking for the products themselves and we we're doing really, really good numbers. We ranked for like Garcinia Cambodia review for like three days at some point, like at, during the craze. That was yeah. good money. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were number three for like three days and then it disappeared. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that happened, but uh, it's, it, when you get these keywords, it's, it's really yeah. nice. Yeah. We used to rank for Venus Factor on uh, ClickBank when it was big as well. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah, my, another question I have for you is, what is the average time span? I mean, obviously, it's going to change a lot depending on the sites, but like between the time when you publish and the time where you're, you're, a piece of content reaches its cruise speed in terms of revenue, like how long usually? Uh, I guess it kind of just depends on the trust and authority of the domain I'm putting that content on in the first place. Like if it's a new site, like, usually nothing ranks for anything. So I'm not really getting, being a stickler about when when stuff starts to make money. But I consider the lifetime of a website to have two milestones. The first milestone is when it gets out of the sandbox. So when it can actually start ranking on pages two, three, and four and stuff like that. And then I consider another milestone is when it hits authority mode where you're just putting up new content that's ranking on page one or two, right? So if it's in authority mode, I expect it, like a new piece of content, if the the optimization is done right and keyword research is decent, to rank somewhere on page one or two, and you know, first month it could be earning something, and then typically after three months, you do some linking, you do some CRO on it, then it should be really earning at that point. Cool. How much of your focus when you do link building do you put on? I mean, how much in terms of link building for a whole site focus do you put on links to page versus links to domain? Like, like, you know, there's kind of two schools that are going this way these days. One tends to work more on its domain authority or domain rating, I would say, mainly. And the other side tries to get links to the page they want to rank directly, even if that means neglecting the domain rating. Right, right. So, surprise, I'm not like a full white hat SEO. So, a lot of the links that... Oh, really? <laughs> a lot of the links I build is, is like I have control over those. So I don't really have an issue on where I can get people to link to, whether it be informational content or homepage content. So I'm basically just trying to mimic what I believe to be the natural course of the internet, which would be somewhere in between 40 to 60% of the links going to the homepage, which means the remainder will go to the inner page or something like that. Okay. Interesting, because we do mostly way high, I mean, fully yeah. way high, really. And the main tactic that we use is uh, essentially skyscraper. So we find a piece of content that has a lot of links, and then we create something great, and then we email the people that link to these two pieces that are similar mm-hmm. to this one, basically. That's the main way we do link building. And that gets us way, way, way more links to internal pages than it does to the homepage. Actually, the homepage doesn't get that many links. It does naturally, mm-hmm. you know? But there's no link building effort put right. on it. Do you think that's uh, that's a negative? Well, that said, like I story. So I, my business partner bought a website off Flippa for five hundred bucks. Like it was nothing, and it wasn't making that much money either. And he saw some value in it. And basically, I looked at the SEO of it, and it had like two links to the homepage and like sixty links to the inner pages. 
And I just started pillowing to the homepage. I started getting things looking more naturally. And the homepage didn't rank for anything or it wasn't trying to rank for anything. But the entire rankings for all the pages start to go up when that natural thing started happening. That said, I don't think your your situation will be bad unless you're like 10% homepage links and 90% inner. Then that kind of starts to look like manipulation, right? Like uh, if, if you were just uh-huh. letting links happen naturally, m- majority of the time they're going to come to the homepage. It would still be the case for like a big newspaper, for example. Yeah, maybe not. Like let's say... You know what I mean? Like when they have so many articles, there's, there's news, et cetera, it's still the case. I mean, I don't know. I'm really just asking. I'm actually wondering. We might, we might try to build links to the homepage of Health Ambition. I'd definitely say more than 90% of the links on Health Ambition point to inner pages, you know? So it's something that we should definitely try. I think that's a, that's an interesting thought. Okay. Now, I will, a question that goes... You can do it sorry. cheaply. Like, have you done local citations yet? No, no. I mean, there's plenty of things we can do. I mean, even just with like mass resource page outreach, et cetera. It's, right. it's not that hard, actually. Now that we have decent branding on this side, it's not that bad, you know. So it's definitely, I'm not worried about doing it. It's just a matter of right. actually doing it, you know. <laughs> what do you do when content that you expected to rank doesn't rank? Mm, it kind of happens often, but I'll kind of look at the keyword, right? I, I feel like the way Google is treating new pages or content or new new keywords on a, on a on a domain is like it'll look at your homepage's theme like what is the top level of your site for, so like for health ambition the top of that umbrella is really high it's health right so you could rank for anything under health and that's fine but let's say for example like i don't know i had a, a website on the best treadmills right I shouldn't rank for anything related to what's the best way to jog for burning calories, right? You, you'd be blessed if you rank for that. So I wouldn't really care. But if it's in my lane, for example, if it's underneath that top level term, then I'll dig through it. I probably did something wrong in that case. And I, I feel like that's debuggable. So do you have some kind of like auditing system or something? Like you just have a checklist Yeah, or we, we're like really meticulous about our optimization and stuff like that. <laughs> but like I said before... 90% of the time, like when stuff doesn't go our way these days, it's keyword cannibalized. It's so silly. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Do you think people have more chances to rank for, let's say they find like a really good affiliate niche. Do you think they have more chances by ranking, like if they brand broad, like health ambition, or if they brand really specific, like, like the yeah. threadmill stuff? Like, do you think it matters? And do you think, how do you think the size structure influences? Right. In my experience, like I've, up until the last year or so, I've never really got into the idea of affiliate or, oh, sorry, authority sites, mainly because like I'm not 100% white hat SEO. So I had this fear like the bigger you are, the harder you're going to fall, and that's going to break my heart. So that's different now completely. I can talk about that later. I had that mm-hmm. fear and I was kind of staying away from that. You know, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what were we talking about? Okay, no worries. Take your time. Like, do you think that you can? Do you think there's an advantage to go super niche like the threadmill stuff, or do you? Or do you think you'd need to adapt the size structure if you went broader, like something like health ambition? Like, how would you tackle it, and what are the differences, and what are the pros and cons? Okay, yeah. So when I was really focusing on niche sites, I wouldn't be intimidated when I saw the niche and I saw like a whole bunch of like wide wide ride birth authority sites. I would just laser in with an EMD or something like that. I feel like you can mm-hmm. go and rank faster with EMDs and PMDs and very laser niche sites, but it'll take longer for the authority sites, but you 
you have an asset that you can rank for a whole bunch of other stuff later. So it's a long play. Uh, do you think that people should start niche and then rebrand? Because now it seems like redirecting a domain in square one, changing the domain name is really no big deal. Like Google handles it way better. Before it was like flipping a coin, you know? <laughs> now it's like from the modest experience, it's, it's much better. So like if someone is starting now, would you say go for something niche first? So like, for example, make a thread mill site, don't, but you know, and then if you want to broaden up, just make it a category of a more branded domain later, or would you start with the big brand? Man, I, I don't have the experience that you're reporting. Like, <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm pushing you, right? If you don't have the answer, it's fine. I'm just, I, these are literally questions I have. I don't necessarily <laughs> have the answer, right? Real ones. But uh, if I have that question, I'm sure other people have it. We were in a casino niche recently, and we had an e or a partial match domain. And you know, the the casino itself, we found out in the terms of service that they had to like get rid of us or whatever. So we three hundred one did and just never recovered. And I've tried, you know, the the acquisition technique. I forget who coined that. Maybe it was Nathan mm. Nathan Gotch. Maybe I'm not sure. Where you you know you acquire a site and you three hundred one it to a category. I've never gotten that to work. So I'm the worst at three hundred ones. You know. Okay, well, we actually have a member. I can say his name because he's face on his website. Uh, Kevin Espiritu, he has a site on gardening and he bought uh, a site that was just about one type of flower. I can't remember which one. And he bought it for like very cheap, like a thousand bucks and it was getting a hundred thousand mm-hmm. views per month, right? And he threw one redirected, edited the content, made it a category and now he gets like 200,000 views per month or something from that category. Wow. So there's cases where it works very well. There's also a really good case study on um, authoritynutrition.com. I don't know if you've seen that site before. It used to be a pretty big blog run by a guy called Chris Gunner, I think, that was a really, really good nutrition blog. It's been bought for several million dollars cool. by Healthline, and they've just redirected it to their nutrition category. And now they get three times more traffic than that blog had before. And it's a huge win for them. So I guess experiences can still vary. When was the last time you did this three-one stuff? Was it long ago? I want to say mid last year, so maybe around May of 2017. Still not that far away, actually. Like, I mean, for me, like in the last 12 months, 301 redirects have been a lot better since Google had to deal a lot more with like HTTPS moves, etc. I feel they they smoothed and they had to, right? It's the same process. HTTPS is a different URL. So when you do an HTTPS, you essentially do a 301 move. So I feel for me, from my experience, for the stuff we've done, it's been a lot smoother than it was like three, four years ago where you, yeah, you would flip a coin, 50% chance you'd lose all your traffic. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, maybe we got lucky. We don't have a statistically relevant test to really say that. What do you do for content that used to rank high and then slowly loses ground? And you see it like, you know, you were like number two, then two weeks later, you're number three, then five, then seven, then eight. Does that happen to you? And how do you handle that? Yeah, it happens for sure. The the nerd in me has to fix that kind of stuff. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't just let that slide. But typically these days, like keyword cannibalization is a big part of it. And then what I'm kind of starting to detect is like Google is rolling out these updates constantly. And, you know, people have all these theories on what they could be. Is it, do I have too many affiliate links on the page? Do I, is there, you know, the user metrics bad or there's too many thin pages on my website? Like all these different theories. One of mine right now is that Google's just trying to starting to ignore more links. So I feel like they might have just you had a hundred links one day and then you have eighty the next day. So typically in these kind of situations, I'll I'll cross off all the boxes, make sure the optimization is right, 
check keyword cannibalization, and then just start building links again. And it's worked out quite a few times. I actually like this theory. Like I, I tend to not like them, but <laughs> this makes sense because there was all this negative SEO stuff and Google kept pretending it didn't exist, but it did really. And the disable tool, etc., And all of this stuff's fading away. And for it to fade away, Google has to be automatically ignoring links. So I guess, yeah, I guess it makes sense in their evolution. It's like, is it the reason why you're sliding off? I don't know. But Google going that direction, yeah, I can definitely see it. But yeah, it, it's one of the most annoying things as an effort. It's like you're making good money and then you see that place slowly, slowly go down. I've lost a couple of nights over these things. I know you play a lot with uh, featured snippets as well. You wrote a post on stealing them, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you do it? Mm, so I look and see what Google's already considering to put in the snippet. It's usually some kind of format like a table or a number list or a bullet point list. And then first I look at what is my content on the same, my piece of content that's addressing that. And then I'll apply the same formatting to my section of the content that's answering the answer. So let's say it's how to shave your beard for winter or something like that. And then the it's like a, uh, ordered list article, step one, you apply the shaving cream, step two, you get the razor, whatever. So I'll find that online and then implement an ordered list. But then I'll just do a little bit more optimization around that part. So I'll put in more LSI keywords around there. If there's any chance to use a scientific term, those typically increase the chances that I'll end up in a snippet, stuff like that. But the snippets are so finicky, like they change so much. I give it a first effort. And then if it starts dancing in and out of it, like it's not really that big of a deal to me. Like I kind of just move on because it's just so, so finicky. Yeah, I agree. It's I mean, at some point you see a table, at some point you see a list, at some point you see all this stuff. And it's kind of like looking at a, at a special moment. It's like Google has probably already made its mind on what's the next one's going to be. And like, I mean, I've tried to do that sometimes. Like it was a table ranking. I put a table and then I check two weeks later and it's bullet lists. And then I do change it again. And I just feel it's still a feature that's in beta for Google personally. It's still too new. And it's like, there will be, I think, much harder rules in like two, three years, you know? Yeah, it's nice to rank for it, but it, it also feels very time consuming because it changes all the time. It's really nice that now Ahrefs tracks them. You get to see which of your keywords have these and, and it's much easier to, you don't have to Google your stuff basically. And one question I had as well that I'm sure a lot of people will care about is what's your take on TFIDF, keyword density, all that stuff? Does it really matter? Should you write naturally or should you aim for a percentage? Exact keyword versus you know, long tail variations, etc. What do you recommend to your friends at the bar 11 p.m. when they're like, oh, my diggity, how's it going in China? <laughs> so when I'm buying a website or if I see like if I have a JV partnership, someone applies for LeadSpring and they want to partner, one of the first things I look at is over-optimized keyword density. And I'm typically looking at single words. So if you're trying to rank for best shaver for men, I'm looking at the words best and shaver and for, not for, and men. And looking to see how dense those are on the page. And if they're if they're crazy, if they're like 5 to 10%, like I know it's a quick win. Just based on experience, is like clockwork for me. So I really do believe it's a thing. I don't think you should write fully naturally. At the end of the day, it's it's a robot that's reading it. It's not a human yet, or not even an AI, even close. So I do think that it's based on rules, and those rules still are dictated by Panda stuff, which is related to keyword stuffing and stuff like that. So as of so far, I've just been using blanket 
you know, two to three percent single word keyword density for most of my sites. I really want to believe in TFIDF. I've tested it a bunch of times. I haven't gotten a result yet. That said, I want to believe in it so much. I'm testing it for my fourth time right now, and I'm getting results. I'm getting some good results on it. I'll be honest. I I tested Market Muse. I don't know if you heard about it. Hmm. What's that? It's kind of like it's. I mean, their marketing says. I don't know what's behind, right? But their marketing says it's kind of like AI powered TFIDF type content tool. So it helps you optimize your content for search, right? I've tested it on like ten articles, I think. That hasn't done anything personally. TFIDF hasn't done much for me either. I really would like to believe in it as well, and that's why I keep bringing it up and I keep asking HPro members and so on. And it's like there's the people that really, really, really believe in it, and there's the people that just like ah, just write naturally. I also believe that it's a machine, though, so there has to be a rule behind. I also don't think that Google has the computing capacity to apply very advanced AI to crawling content. So it's like it, there has to be rules. But I have never been convinced by any of my tests or anyone that has tried to convince me so far. But I still want to ask because I, I still want to believe that there's some kind of golden ratio somewhere that we haven't found yet. You know, it, it makes sense. The champion theoretically is TFIDF. It just I haven't gotten it to work yet. But it really seems like I'm, I don't want to be premature on it. And I'll share my results with you after this. But it looks like it's going to work out in these latest tests. Interesting. What did you change this time? Uh, just had a whole bunch of articles that were just written. They're ranking around page two on a site that's been static for a while. It's just a testing site. And so ran TFIDF through texttools.com. And then you get that little spectrum graph or whatever. And then just try to make my content fit the graph, let it recrawl. And then I'm looking at the rankings every few weeks and it's going up significantly. So... But this isn't like high competition stuff. This is like ranking for blue bubblegum toothpicks, you know? Yeah, it could be a 0.1% factor, basically. I have a friend who had actually good results by decreasing the reading level of it, so making it easier to read, you know? So he uses a Hemingway app to edit his content and just make less complex sentences, make them shorter, reduce adverbs, this kind of stuff. And, and it seems like it helps his SEO quite a bit. So there may be some kind of... And, and Google can use this algorithmically, but like something where they try to have the lowest common denominator so that um, your content is appealing to the most people possible. And reducing reading level would definitely count for Google, I believe. So it's. And it could be user metrics. Like maybe people are bouncing less because they're not intimidated by, oh, who's this fancy pants using his Harvard language, you know? Exactly. So it's something that I want to I wanna test properly as well. But if, if you have room in your test, I recommend you check this out as well. <laughs> All right. I know you like you mentioned a few times you don't just do what I see you also do gray hat stuff. I mean you guys sell PBN links, I think, uh, on digital marketing. Like I know you do both though, as I know you also do white hat outreach, etc. And so I'm quite interested in knowing when you pick which and what is the reasoning behind it. Sure. Uh, just a side note. So on Monday I announced that Diggity Links got acquired. So I'm actually out of the PBN selling game. That said, I'm not out of Congratulations, by the way. Thanks, man. Thanks. It's a, a cool moment. Um, but yeah, it doesn't mean I'm out of the PBN game. It's still a big tactic for me. And basically how I use it is I like to start websites with Gray Hat SEO. So the first links I build are PBNs. And I know that might sound a little bit counterintuitive. Like, well, shouldn't you start with trusted links? Like, shouldn't you, you know, go less aggressive and then maybe sprinkle them in later? 
Well, at the end of the day, a PBN is just another WordPress blog until proven guilty. And why I like the PBN at the beginning is you have complete control. You have control over the anchor. It's super powerful. It's coming from a homepage, so you can get a big gain from it rather than you know having 20 links you need to get that same kind of gain and there's more moving parts. Now there's just one or two links that get you a certain gain and it's just more easy and more bite-sized to deal with. And then once, like we talked about those milestones of the website, once you're out of the sandbox, then I start to pour on the white hat SEO. So that's when the outreach campaigns start. And I do that because a site has its trust now. It has a decent bit of traffic. It it has earned its stripes, so to speak, because it's out of the sandbox. So you can increase the link velocity and just start pouring on that white hat. And then eventually, like I'll mix gray hat and white hat when it's in this growth stage, but eventually I'll start peeling the gray hat, the PPN links, and have the site be completely white hat. Now, I don't do this because it's a risk to me. I do it just because I like to flip all sites and I like to flip them white because it's a higher multiple. The reason I feel like it's not a risk, and this is, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want Google to patch anything, but I've built hundreds of websites, hundreds and hundreds of websites. And in my whole experience, I've had two manual penalties. One was a thin content and one was a a natural links, which is backlink related. And the maximum time any of them were penalized was just four weeks. And, And to get out a manual penalty is a lot, lot easier than people think. I, I work with Rick Lomas. He's a specialist in, in penalty recovery. And he's he's recovered at least 500, I would say, by now. And he's never not been able to recover a site. And this includes big ones like Supplement Police. We recovered that one in December. You know, So it's just, that's the way I go about it. I get rid of the black hat. I get rid of the gray hat simply just because I like to flip for a higher price. Okay, I get it. So, but the reason you start with gray hat is mostly because it's more efficient for you, right? Yeah, it's control. And I feel like I can get out of the sandbox quicker because I'm dealing with a smaller amount of links. Because you have less links, you get out of the sandbox quicker. I don't understand that part, actually. It's a link velocity theory, right? So, to get, so like typically a PBN. Depends on the PVN, but it typically has like five or five to or up to 10x more power than a white hat outreach link. So, in the beginning, like if you want fast results, you can send 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 white hat links, but then you hit the link velocity threshold and you might just annoy Google and then you're in the sandbox for longer. You can accomplish this with less PVN links and you won't hit like a link velocity issue. I don't understand what is the link velocity issue. What does it? It's just like you get too many links at once, and then Google doesn't like it. Yeah, especially in the in the initial phases, like the sandbox phase, when you're on probation, they don't want to see anything that looks unrealistic. And why would a brand new website just get fifty links? Right? It's possible that it could get three or four. But... I mean, it's definitely possible if you think like local press or product launch, etc. It definitely happens. I mean. If you remember back in the day, the Red Bull Stratos website was brand new and got millions of links. Yeah, I'm just trying to stay within the statistical probability of, you know, there's always anomalies, but I'm trying to blend in. That's like the main goal of a gray hat SEO, just try to make everything look cool. The funny thing is like with the white hat, when you get started anyway, for us, you know, we we use branded emails. So like addomain.com for the outreach. And anyway, you can't outreach that much initially. You kind of need to warm up the emails, you know? 
So naturally, you reach that like slow growth of links because your outreach emails, you know, the first day you send 25 emails, that's it, you know. Then a week later, you put 50 emails a day. And then a week later, you put 75 or 100, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I get, I get your point. It's just uh, in terms of efficiency, it's like for us, we sometimes we manage to get $5 per link or something. So like a lot of people, once again, and that's something that I think we need to point out. It's like we're both open to each other's vision. It's all about business efficiency we're talking here. Like in the end, with nobody's breaking the law, so every, everyone just deals with these things. But I mean, for us, yeah, for, I, I would say health mission is about $5 per links right now. And it's like, from what I've looked around, and I'm sure when you run your own PBNs, it's cheaper, but like running a proper PBN is more than 50 bucks, even if it's 10 times more powerful. You know what I mean? In terms of, of costs, et cetera, we've actually found it to be more efficient economically, essentially. I'll definitely agree with that. Like PBN management these days, and you know, you buy the domain, you put content on it. You host it, which is a fee. There's the registration cost as well. But on top of that, there's a huge amount of R&D that goes into it these days because they don't always work and you have to figure out what are these filters that Google has on it. It's definitely not easy anymore. But that said, you, you raised a really good point. It's just, it's all about a business decision. If your business is set up to get $5 outreach links, then for sure. And my business is set up to the point where like, Either way, it's you're not doing the work and I'm not doing the work. It's it's our system and our teams that are doing the work. So it comes out to a business decision, right? Like how long can it, will it take to get ranking in this tactic? When you're not ranking, how much do you consider that to be a loss? And you add all this up and then you make your own business decision. I think that's the important way to look at it. White hat people aren't doing anything wrong. They're not stupid for being conservative by all means. Gray hat people aren't illegal assholes. It's just, it's all just a business decision. That's how people should look at it. But I, I get it. But you know, I think you had a really, really, really good point on like the people getting out of penalties really quickly. I think I followed the 10 beasts case when they got penalized. I think a lot of people did, you know. And I was amazed at how quickly you guys got it out of penalty. And it's like, I remember we had that discussion. I was like, where is the incentive to not do gray hat when you can get out of there for like in four days or something it took you? Actually, I didn't help Lookman on that one, but uh, yeah, he did get out in like a week. Okay, we talked about it. And it's like, I mean, when I see something like this, I have nothing to say other than say, well, actually, it's not that bad of a business decision to do gray hat for the people that decide to do it. As long as Google is maintaining that policy of like, oh, we forgive you everything in four days, you know? It used to not be the case. And I started SEO around the same time as you did, around 2009. And back in the day, it was a lot harder, right? There was no disable tool. Nobody would reply to you in Webmaster's tool. And it was just like, well, just deal with it. And many people were just restarting a brand new site, right? And I would argue that some of the stance that we have may come from these times, you know? But it seems like times have changed as well and that Google has been a lot more opened to forgive people doing gray hat stuff, completely changing the equation of is it worth it or not? Do I recommend it? Nope, still not, because our cost per link is good enough to justify what we're doing. But if things, I mean, if, if things were to change, I'd just look at the numbers, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And things go either way, right? Like if Google starts making it sting harder to and, and people get penalized more often, then you'll see me singing your tune. 
Exactly. So it's like, but I think it's important for people who listen to this because it's like I see these battles on Facebook groups, etc. And I really don't think it makes a lot of sense. In the end, it's like whatever process you've built, how much it costs you. And then I really liked like your decision when you said, "Oh, I'm switching to white hat because I sell for higher multiples." Like, there's a real rational decision why you're doing it behind it. At the same time, because you have these gray hat backgrounds, you can essentially get these sides off the ground much faster. I also think what you're doing, uh, where I'm a little bit jealous sometimes, is single page links. You know, we talked about like domain versus single page links because of the way we're doing outreach. It's much harder to get links to an affiliate article, etc. We often have to give page rank to these pages through internal linking, essentially. Whereas what you're doing, you can get direct links to page and, and, and sometimes, well, it can give you the edge on some keywords, you know? Yeah, I, I find it's quite significant. That said, I'm doing all of these white hat tactics too. I'm doing skyscraper, I'm doing link roundups and stuff like that too. So it's a holistic approach, but in the beginning, I, I might say that gray hat probably has its advantages over white hat. Yeah, fair enough. For us, uh, when we tell people building stage one size the way we do it, we do say it does take some time at the beginning because to ramp up your domain rating at the beginning plus getting out of the sandbox, etc. well, it's it's several months, you know, usually. And there's no current candy in it. It takes more time. It's just like you trade a bit more safety because Google could change its policy at any point. Right now, it's really not that bad on Grey Hat, at, but it could change. So you trade some more safety in exchange for taking more time to get results, I would say. Okay, I guess we're getting to the end of this interview. It was already an hour plus. I can't believe that. Do you want to talk a little bit about Chiang Mai SEO maybe? Yeah, yeah. So like where you are and like other pockets in the world, like uh, Lisbon seems to be one, Medellin, Colombia, Chiang Mai is a hotspot for digital nomads, so to speak. And it's a real big hotspot for SEOs. There's a special thing going on here. Like at any time, there's at least 20 to 30 high-level SEOs here. In the high season, which is like November through January, it's just out of control. Like you, you get sick of SEO. You can't avoid it. Um, and then we've been having, or for the past two years, and this is be the third year, we've been having events here. The first year was just a mastermind event. The second year, we decided to have a full-blown Chiang Mai SEO conference. It did really well. 500 seats were sold. This year, we're doing it again. I'm super excited about it. I just really like talking about this stuff. That's why it felt like this podcast was like 10 minutes for me because I just geek, I love geeking out on this stuff. So the conference is my ultimate fix on geeking out. And my girlfriend hates it. My, my wife hates it. But, uh, you know, you got to let the boys be boys. Fair enough. It's, I mean, Chiang Mai is the only city where someone recognized me in the street. Like it never, ever happened to me. Happened, I mean, it happened like twice, I think, when I was there, like two years ago. But yeah, it's like definitely a big SEO hotspot. So yeah, if, like you should check it out. I think we'll put a link to the conference. So if you want to geek out, I know a lot of HPro members are going as well. So you won't be alone. I might drop by. I don't know yet, to be honest. It's, it really depends on what we have to do. But there's a chance I might drop by. So I'll probably make an announcement a little bit later. That's so. awesome. I'd love to see you. And also, I will be in Budapest in August. So I hope you... Oh, okay. So if anyone else wants to come, just, just tell us before. Usually we have a lot of people from Motori Hacker actually coming in August in Budapest. So yeah, I'll see you there. And uh, I'm going to wrap up the podcast though. So thank you for joining. It was a lot of information. I think I think you might want to come back at some point if you want, because I think that was a really good one. Uh, let's see what people say. But I like the high level ones when we go a little bit deeper than how to rank on Google, etc. So thank you for joining. If you want to check out Chiang Mai, so check it out. There will be the link in the show notes. 
And thank you for tuning in, everyone. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.